what has been missing for all these years is a way to bridge across the translational gap. So we have tons and tons of new discoveries about aging, what drives aging. We can even reverse aging, at least in a laboratory. Mm. But that hasn't really translated to humans mm. at this point. And so no, I'm waiting. Our focus <laughs> yeah, is to think about how we're going to do that. And, and do your plants age too? Do plants? plants age? I am certain that they do. Mm. Sorry for saying Sorry Media presents the Purr Podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hi, this is Dr. Susan Little. And Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, and this is the Per Podcast Life. Japan version. Japan version. Tokyo version. Although we shouldn't say that much because it might be a lot later, you know? Well, we're still in Japan. Yeah, we are. It <laughs> doesn't change Japan, that. Japan, Japan. And this is our fourth guest, Japanese guest. Yes, well, not really a Japanese guest, though, right? Right. Unless there's something about you we don't know. No. Yes. No. You don't no have Japanese. Japanese descent. No. no nothing. No. Uh, no. 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 So it's the fourth fourth interview we've recorded yes. in Japan, and we're lucky, very lucky, to have with us uh, Nicole Earhart. Hello, everybody. Hello, Nicole. So, what do you do, Nicole? I am a surgical oncologist at Colorado State University, professor there, and also I direct uh, the new Center for Healthy Aging. At CSU. Ah. Wow. How old is the Center for Healthy Aging? Great question. Um, it is physically about two and a half years old, but this is the first full-time director they've hired, and that position started on August 1st. So what does the Center for Healthy Aging, aging do? Well, um, what we are doing is uh, creating a transdisciplinary or interdisciplinary research center that will unite different areas of research involving aging across campus at Colorado State University and then among different universities with an emphasis on comparative medicine. Um, comparative medicine is a wonderful way to think about aging research um, in a new way. People haven't really been thinking about aging research as an aspect of comparative medicine. So it's a it's a new model and it's something that I think is really exciting. And we all age. Yeah, we all age. Um, is this multiple aging. species or just certain species? Multiple species and so really thinking about the companion animal in any sense, whether mm -hmm. that's horses, cats, dogs, bunnies, mm -hmm. whatever, mm -hmm. as a means to think about animals that age in a natural way rather than thinking about laboratory animals of aging, although mm. that is still a very important piece of aging research, what has been missing for all these years is a way to bridge across the translational gap. So we have tons and tons of new discoveries about aging, what drives aging. We can even reverse aging, at least in a laboratory. Mm. But that hasn't really translated to humans mm. at this point. And so- No, I'm waiting. Our focus <laughs> yeah, is to think about how we're gonna do that. And, and do your plants age? Too? Do plants? plants age? I am certain that they do. Mm. But probably everything ages, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. I think they're probably maybe things different that are, rates or very you know, slow. Yeah. Right? I'm not totally sure. Some of them live some plants are really old. Time. Some plants are very old. So what got you interested in that? Yeah. yeah, that's a really great question. So I was doing some work in stem cell research mm -hmm. and muscle regeneration and okay. bone regeneration and started realizing that as we age our stem cells in our body, which are our repair mechanisms, mm. they'd begin to um, diminish in number and the function gets messed up. Mm. 
And so as I th thought about how to regenerate tissues, it sort of morphed into not only just regenerating tissues and big tissue defects, which is really where I started this research, but also thinking about how we can help our muscles and skeletal uh, system age in a more healthy way. Mm. And so that, when I say our, I mean humans, but also companion animals. Because there is some interest in stem cell um, treatments for things. Like I know Colorado State's been doing some work with like kidney disease, for example. Mm -hmm. And I know there's also interest in stem cells for things like arthritis too. That and is in correct. A, in, a, in a way, to me, it seems like to some degree, um, what is happening out in um, clinical practice is a little bit ahead of the science or the evidence behind it. Right? I think that's a great that summary. It? Yeah, yeah, I think mm -hmm. the hype has been far mm -hmm. ahead of the science. And so people have really jumped on the bandwagon on the promise of stem cell therapy, but the actual evidence um, is less than maybe what one would think for the various ways in which stem cells are being used. Mm. That's not to say that there isn't enormous potential and that in certain circumstances, stem cells can be an amazing treatment for many diseases, but I think the way in which they're used currently can kind of dilute the evidence mm. um, that they're, you know, that they potentially could have to uh, to to support that. Yeah, because we don't concept. have really evidence-based protocols. And when you say stem cell, right, it sounds like it's a thing, but there's like different types of stem cells and how many and how many injections and how do you deliver mm -hmm. it. It's pretty complex, huh? It, it is really complex. Yeah. And, you know, as we age, the stem cells themselves, so all of our tissues have stem cells, um, but as we age, that stem cell number diminishes and the function of those stem cells diminish, and that whole process is a, a driver of aging. Mm -hmm. And that it's called stem cell exhaustion. So one of the things I was working on is, okay, can we repair or reverse stem cell exhaustion um, using various types of biologics? And the truth is, at least in the laboratory, we are very successful at that. Um, and I think it holds a lot of promise for companion animals and humans, but right now we need to translate that effectively. And, and to this date, it hasn't been done very well, um, but I think we have an opportunity, especially using comparative medicine, to do that. And your other That's background exciting. is in oncology, yes, where sir. stem cells play an important role too. Yes. It might be the other side of the coin a little mm. bit, because when you talk about stem cell therapies right now, people also talk about, okay, what happens if these stem cells go away mm -hmm. and then you get tumor formation. Again. That's right. Yeah, so there is there is sort of a dark side of stem mm -hmm. cells and that has um, been shown over and over again in laboratory uh, studies that if you inject tumor cells along with stem cells, it actually promotes tumor growth and promotes mm -hmm. spread of tumors. And so we were really interested in that question is how safe are normal stem cells mm -hmm. in cancer patients. Mm -hmm. And uh, we did some work with that specifically using a model of osteosarcoma mm -hmm. and learned that my if you, tumor. I know, it's my favorite tumor <laughs> no, too, that's a in a weird and terrible yeah, way. I yeah, I'm not sure. Like, that's, is that not yeah. good? It's yeah. like a bit of an oxymoron or something. Favorite Isn't it? tumor, yeah. yeah. But I say that I favorite diseases too. It's kind of the same thing. So. I know. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so, so we found out that um, if you give the stem cells locally in the site of a previous surgery, it actually didn't have any increased risk of promoting recurrence of the tumor, even when we knew there was microscopic residual disease. But if wow. you gave them systemically, if you gave them mm -hmm. in the circulation, they mm -hmm. lodged in the lungs and in animals that had pre-existing microscopic pulmonary metastasis, it actually promoted tumor mm. formation. So it varies from tissue to tissue. It varies in the delivery, delivery mechanism. Delivery mechanism. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. So there's a lot out there. I mean, I could I could have you know a two bottle of wine conversation mm. with all of you about stem cells and the good mm. the good the bad and the, the ugly. ugly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that, this right. it's this bit that worries me a lot when we see you know companies promoting. Um, stem cell products and you think oh, like do we really know enough to be out there doing that mm-hmm. yeah. and that's why we need this the, research yeah. Yeah. group yeah. that looks a little bit more has a little bit more emphasis on especially the evidence base behind it right and yeah. safety yeah and safety and safety, and safety. Yeah. so as a surgical oncologist what do you do uh, well we're mostly focused on removing solid tumors in a way that promotes uh, the optimum treatment pathway for those pets so um, cats, dogs, occasionally other creatures um, where we uh, that have cancer and need to have that cancer removed surgically as part of a multimodal treatment plan. So we work very, very closely with our medical oncology group, our radiation oncology group, and even our clinical trials team to determine an optimum treatment pathway. And that is a conversation that happens long before the animal ever goes into the OR. Mm -hmm. And we feel that this multimodal approach, this way of looking at cancers from multiple different disciplines is the best way to think about um, treating cancer and has certainly shown benefits in human medicine and we see this also in in veterinary medicine. Mm -hmm. And can you tell a little bit the role Colorado has played in this? Because I think Steve Withrow is, you know, we always call him the grandfather Mm -hmm. of of oncology in general, surgical oncology in specifics. Uh, And and he started, he came from AMC, came to Colorado and that's where he started this uh, Mm multi-disciplinary system. Yeah, and he really was a visionary in a time in veterinary medicine where cancer was almost a, you know, diagnose and euthanize kind of mm-hmm. situation. And so he, he and along with Ed Gillette and other pioneers, uh, really started this comparative oncology program, um, which is very, as you can kind of tell, echoes sort of my own um, approach to aging. Um, but, but Steve has been a pivotal um, player in this whole concept of, of multimodal cancer therapy. Colorado State University was one of the first um, universities to have an integrated clinical oncology service that where when uh, clients would come in with their pets that had cancer or were suspected to have cancer, they met with a surgical oncologist, a medical oncologist, a radiation oncologist, and a clinical trials team member, mm-hmm. all in the same um, in the same day, yeah, and same typically session. at the same time in the same room. And we found that just even hearing each other talk, the radiation oncologist, the surgical oncologist, the medical oncologist, the conversation that happened helped us to really fine tune and adjust and make mo- little tiny course adjustments in our treatment plans that really... F- Uh, gave the animal the best potential outcome and that's been shown in multiple other um, situations when you have a complex disease if you have multiple specialists that are talking to each other with either the patient or the client in the case of veterinary medicine in the room the outcomes for those patients are so much better and I can see why I mean this Mm -hmm. has been something that uh, has I sort of grew up in was immersed in and I think, uh, you know, is I, I'm a believer. And certainly Steve has been uh, uh, an amazing influence in my life and many, many people, including your own, mm-hmm. I know, Absolutely. Yola, and, yep. um, and just uh, pioneering this whole approach. And that's quite a shift in veterinary medicine, as you say, right? In, in not that long a period of time, right? Because we've... Uh, I don't think we've been paying that much attention to um, oncology and veterinary medicine in length of time compared to the human side. So, you know, comparatively, I think we've we've gone a long way from, you know, just within my career, right? Mm-hmm. My my uh, professional career all the way from, ah, uh, it's got a tumor, 
sorry, right? right? To now we've got these multi multidisciplinary teams that get the, together. The interesting thing is that in in my career, I haven't seen that many other entities do, do the, the same, same thing. thing. So yes. you probably should do the same thing when yes. you're talking about kidney disease and you probably should do the same thing yeah. when you talk about heart disease. So you get all those different opinions in there. The one thing that I remember from Colorado when I was there is that you had the rounds where the students were there, but it was not only the students who were the internal medicine, radiation, pathologist, you mm. know, they were sitting there and discussing and, you know, Bar Powers is, you know, the pathologist of the mm -hmm. A this century uh, and and she was there and she was always open to listen to you and give opinions and that sort of things so it was just an amazing experience the good and the bad you know mm -hmm. i've cried so many times during those stupid rounds mm -hmm. because of those cases and mm -hmm. those stories and mm -hmm. that it just brings that group together and it's amazing what you can do and it's an amazing training facility too for residents whether they're surgical residents or internal medicine residents or oncology residents because all of a sudden they they're hearing you know the surgeons talk about uh, what they're concerned about what they feel is going to be successful and they become better educated about the surgical options even though that's not their specialty mm. and so then when they go elsewhere they can have an initial conversation and say you know I'm not the surgeon because often what happens is pets will see you know owners will see a surgical oncologist or a surgeon and then in a different day or a different appointment they'll see the uh, medical oncologist or the radiation oncologist and it gives them an opportunity to really see uh, the the whole treatment seeing the the holistic I guess treatment mm. of of the pet and gives them a lot more perspective. It certainly has for me, like you were saying with mm -hmm. the pathologists, my goodness, I mean, just understanding just the difficulty of interpreting margins, interpreting specific histologic sections and how they make those decisions really helped us understand a lot more, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, so why surgical oncology? So did you come at this from um, a, an interest or a passion in surgery, in oncology? Was it both? Did you always know you wanted to do this? How'd so good, such a good question. So I, um, I've always sort of had an interest in human cancer medicine since I was in college and more from the perspective of, uh, I guess, you know, kind of the human animal bond and and how animals could serve in, in patient situations to with therapy animals and, mm. and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. That was a, a big deal in college for me. I started a, a pet visitation program mm. at the Ronald McDonald House in Philadelphia when I was at the University of Pennsylvania and became interested in surgery throughout my vet school career and then uh, received um, a surgery residency at Colorado State University and that is actually where I met Steve Withrow. The story though about how I ended up being a, a surgical oncologist um, I actually started my surgical career thinking I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. Oh, really? I know. I know. I know. Hard to Confession believe. Confession yeah, right here. Right? It's like a, that's like, you know, a completely different geography, right? Yeah. It is. Yeah. It is. It is, different but it's personality. Not. Because now I understand with Steve, it's not. As my yeah. friend, and you will get this from okay. the story, I guess. Yeah, so I, I thought that I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. I also thought that I wanted to go into private practice. I thought, no way am I ever going to have an academic career. Those guys have to work way too hard. They make too little. <laughs> money <laughs> and so uh so anyway i was a, i think a first year resident i was in the or doing something and steve withrow came crashing into the room like he usually does and said Earhart, we need you at cancer camp and i said what the heck are you talking about camp? what is cancer camp he said show up at this place with a canoe paddle and a, and a sleeping bag or something on this day and i got you off clinics and i went um yes sir and yeah. like a good little resident and sure enough i showed up at this at this cancer camp and it was a is a summer camp for kids with cancer at the time it was run by ronald mcdonald house um and it was uh kids from ages like eight to sixteen 
and I and they needed a lifeguard. So I he apparently he had looked on my CV and saw that I was lifeguard certified, and and so he just recruited me, like literally commanded me <laughs> to show up there. And I met a little girl, and she was eight years old. Her name was Jenny, and she had had an amputation, um, and she was only about eight weeks or nine weeks out from her amputation, and already swinging around on her crutches and things and I I just and she was bald and and Mm -hmm. had been on chemo and stuff well at that same time right before we had attended camp I had been uh, listening to lectures on limb salvage in in uh, dogs and just learning about how we were saving the limbs of these dogs that had bone cancer turns out this little girl also had bone cancer and as many of you know I'm bone cancer in animals is exactly the same as it is in people especially dogs in fact if you look under the microscope at a tumor section from a person versus a dog you can't tell which one came from which and they behave the same way and they're treated the same way so I thought man now that's so weird you know we're, we're learning how to save the legs of dogs and here's this eight-year-old child who doesn't have a leg and she had a lot of challenges in fact I remember one particularly funny day where we were trying to figure out how you pee in the woods oh, with, with oh, only one leg no. it's very difficult to do yeah. especially as a girl yes. oh. so I mean it was just so impressive but you know what impressed me the most about this child was her spirit and mm-hmm. She was so inspiring, and um, it was one of those, you have tipping points in your career, and that was a tipping point for me. I I said, you know what, I have no business going into private practice when there's a lot of work to be done. And um, I went back to my job and walked into Steve's office uh, and said, hey, I want to dedicate my career to figuring out how to save the legs of kids and dogs. And, you know, and so it, and that's what basically started my (laughs) my career path. And it was a, a... you know, it's one of those things that I have from to this day. I still go back to that camp every single year. I think it's been thirty plus years, and I bring my residents and graduate students there, and I I share with them. I say, you know, I want you to look into the faces of these kids. I mean, they needed help yesterday, and it's going to take all of us working together to get to a place where we can really make a difference. And you may think that working in the lab, counting cells under a microscope, or checking, you know, this or that is really tedious. But I got to say. This is why we're doing this. And, um, and and where can people find more information about this camp? Oh, skyhighhopecamp.org. Okay. We'll put a link in our, yes. uh, on our website. In our and uh, we do take yeah. volunteers. Um, we have 100% volunteer staff. The camp has been running for 30 plus years. Is now under the auspices of the Limb Preservation Foundation, mm. which is a nonprofit uh, dedicated to uh, education and patient assistance and research in people that have limbs at risk of amputation. And I happen to serve on the board of that organization yeah. as well. So plug in for those guys. Yeah. They're doing really good work out there. And I remember when I was there, there, there was such a close connection with the human oncologic surgeons that did osteosarcoma and Steve's group. Mm-hmm. Um, Steve helping them out and them helping Steve out with these, these amazing kits and also these amazing dogs, you know, that um animals that come in that you know people are so attached to yeah. uh, they're not ready to to give up yeah. so dedicated i mean yeah. i've never seen more dedicated people than than at uh, at uh, colorado state i think uh, driving from florida to colorado to get their animal treated mm-hmm. uh, but also you know novel things that were developed at csu that were tried in people mm-hmm. and got exception to be used in people it's just amazing yeah i think steve really steve pioneered those relationships between veterinary surgeons and human surgeons in the cancer world and 
Um, to this day, um, you know, the, the sarcoma surgeons, the people that do limb salvage surgery in people, they know his name. Mm-hmm. And uh, everybody knows his name. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, he has really uh, set a bar um, for others. And they're, they're very aware of the power of comparative medicine as a way to advance uh, surgical techniques, cancer treatments, and now aging. Mm-hmm. This is a this is the newest area. Good one health example. Yeah, yeah. right. It's, yeah. it's really great, and I think it's it's you know a lot of veterinarians are aware of it. Um, on the human side, I I think in some uh, disciplines they are aware of it and using it, but in a lot of disciplines they're not. Mm-hmm. So true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I think. There, that's it, true in the aging space until very recently. So that's one of my big missions is kind of spreading the word. And mm. um, but uh, but yeah, I, I think that in even in the surgical fields, you know, the spine surgeons have never heard of this kind of thing. Mm. For example, um, whereas the sarcoma surgeons are very familiar with it. Yeah. So yeah, yeah there, there's still a lot of work to be done in, in raising awareness of one medicine and comparative mm-hmm. medicine as a powerful tool to translate new discovery to people and to pets. Yeah, we even have uh, MD DVMs now in uh, in the limb sparing arena. I know uh, Will Ewart, yeah. uh, who is a wonderful doctor, uh, both human medicine and veterinary medicine, and I think he does four days of human medicine and one day of veterinary medicine. Mm-hmm. It's amazing, yeah. yeah, if you think about it. Yeah. And and he brings things into both arenas that he learns. So it's just yeah, it's that's very empowering, yeah. I think. Let's let's shift a little to feline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did say the D word. We did. Yes, we need to we need to inject a little feline okay. here. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah we yeah. can talk about feline bone tumors mm-hmm. a little bit. What's mm-hmm. the difference between uh, the D and the cat? <laughs> well, feline osteosarcoma, the most common bone tumor that we see in both species, um, is a very different mm-hmm. kind of disease in cats in the sense that it's less aggressive metastatically. Right. So it tends not to spread quite as quickly. Mm-hmm. And um, although it can spread, um, and oftentimes if we catch it early, amputation can be curative. And unfortunately, that's not the case in other species, but we're really lucky with the cat. The mm. cat is one of those species where we can do a lot to uh, improve quality of life. The other nice thing for kitties is that they do extraordinarily well with amputations. They I mean, do. they never look back. Yeah. And so for us, uh, you know, when we, we have to perform an amputation, that's always a loss to lose a limb, regardless of who you are, four-legged or two-legged, but certainly cats seem to adjust extremely well. And yeah, one, one, at least one um, example of where cats do better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not a lot so, mm-hmm. for for poor kitties, but that that's one uh, one good yeah. example of where yeah, cats do better. I've seen cats with two legs that are without yeah. any problem. Three is easily no problem. Yeah, yeah right. lots of tripod cats mm-hmm. out there. Yeah, mm-hmm. what's the most common? tumor surgically that you get called to treat in cats in kitties it's probably squamous cell carcinomas yeah, yeah. we yeah. talked about that today yeah, yeah. so yola and i did a, an oncology talk this morning and uh we talked about oral squamous cell carcinoma mm. and we talked about it in the context of my own cat who mm. uh, was diagnosed with an oral squamous cell carcinoma and uh we did talk about that um multidisciplinary approach within uh, veterinary oncology so my cat had surgery and radiation and and chemotherapy mm-hmm. and so um i i think that's an important point to make that not all and maybe the minority of tumors can be treated with like one modality mm-hmm. right yeah 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 so well i'm sorry to hear about your kitty mm. yeah and, and squamous cell carcinoma is very frustrating um mm. in the sense that especially it's location wise it can really change its behavior you know, so under the tongue is probably the hardest one, yeah. or tonsillar. 
Um, and we do see um, squamous cell carcinoma a lot in Colorado in the skin of cats because mm -hmm. of our high altitude Cute. and the UV exposure. So mm -hmm. light-colored cats developing little crusty lesions on the edges of their ears or nose, that's something that you certainly want to have checked out because the earlier we can catch an, a very small squamous cell carcinoma, just like in people, mm -hmm. the more likely it is that we can get rid of it with the surgery and, and hopefully not see see that. Uh, disease come at least back. that's in a visible location right mm -hmm. like owners might not know the significance of it initially but at least it's visible i think the challenge with the oral ones of course yes. is that by the time you find them they've often been there quite a while i know and you know yeah. since cats don't pant normally mm -hmm. you know owners don't see inside don't their see cat's there. mouth so until there's either a visible swelling or some blood in the saliva or my cat was drooling room. yeah you know here's here's my cat owned by two veterinarians Right, and it wasn't until the tumor grew big enough that he started to drool. That yeah, we, that and then we realized. I think the thing that's amazed me so much was the fact that the cat had lost a kilo, and you two had no idea that it did. Yeah, he'd lost about ten percent of his mm -hmm. body weight um, by the time you know we were suspicious and took him into our clinic and and whatnot. And it really highlighted for me how challenging it is for owners who see their cat every day to appreciate slow, gradual weight loss, mm -hmm. right? Because I, you know, I used to think you get an owner who comes in with a cat, whether it has cancer or some other disease, and you weigh the cat and it's lost, you know, a kilo, and you think, well, how did you not notice? Mm -hmm. Well, now I know, yeah. you know, if it happens rapidly, mm -hmm. you notice, but yes. now I know exactly why you don't notice. I know, you know, we see that often living in a college town, um, um, students that are away for uh, a semester and then come home, yeah. Um, and notice that their pets are, are something's very different. Whereas the parents who have been with the pet every day every don't, day, notice, don't that. notice it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's too slow and yeah. too gradual. Yeah. And so, you know, there's another pitch for regular preventive health care visits, right? And monitoring especially, weight especially in cats. Especially cats, and, because yeah. we do know that most tumors that are in cats are not so good. I know. Yeah, they have a higher so. percentage of uh, the bad stuff. Yes. Yeah. So really when they do. get, they don't get tumors that often, but when they get them, they're bad. Yeah. And so yeah. you need to be early. Um, and, and and we often laugh about it as surgeons, like a chance to, to cut, cut is a chance, chance to, to cure. cure. But, but surgery yeah. is very often, if you do it early, a curative uh, treatment modality, and all the other ones are are not. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and and so it's it it is important to do preventive medicine. To uh, at least when I was still in clinics. Uh, um, I had clients after the cancer diagnosis come in every six months because mm, now standard. they're very hyper aware and and so people were like why are you watching those cases I mean they're all normal mm. I mean I got case after case after case coming in in the clinic and at first it was because of the relationship with the client that you have but second because of preventative because mm -hmm. I want to catch them early I mean sure. you only get one chance yeah yeah it's so true Nicole this was wonderful I know this is the first part of our two series surgical oncology we have still lots to talk about so thank you very much oh i can't wait to to, to talk some more with you thanks for having me so you'll be back in two weeks yeah i guess yep yep we'll have more surgical oncology in uh, just another episode. and is this the first surgical oncology oh good have question other the... than you mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, i don't count because we don't he doesn't count he counts well he we counts. <laughs> well we don't let him talk about surgical oncology oh. on the podcast i think you're right i think you're our first surgical <gasps> oncologist so excited Honor. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And then we should not forget, uh, you know, you can find all the information on uh, our website, perpodcast.net. Yep. And what do we have to do? We have to subscribe. Yep. Well, yep. Please subscribe and hopefully you'll give us a, a good rating. And you'll also find us on social media at perpodcast on most social media channels as well. So thank you so much. 
It's a pleasure. Five shiny stars for you guys. <laughs> Thank you. Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat-only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks, The Cat, Clinical Medicine and Management, and August, Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine. Along with three cats, she also admits to owning two dogs, and you can follow her on social media with the handle at CatPetSusan. Dr. Yerla Kirpenstein is a diplomate of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently at Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at GVETSX. This episode is made possible by the generous sponsorship of the Take the Pledge Against Struvites in Pets Facebook page. Did you know there are three easy steps to treat bladder stones in cats with lower urinary tract signs? Step one is to take a radiograph, and if there is a stone present in the bladder, step two is to use the Minnesota Urolith app for iPhone and Android to determine the most likely type of stone. Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options. Join veterinarians worldwide to take the pledge not to remove struvite stones by surgery anymore. The opinions of this podcast are those by Dr. Susan Little and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. Veterinary medicine is a complex profession, and often there are multiple diagnostic and therapeutic options for different disease processes. If you're a pet owner with questions, please go to your local veterinarian. If you're a veterinary professional, ask your questions on our Instagram page at per podcast.